Hi, you're listening to Live from the Grafton. This is our very first podcast recorded at the Grafton Pub. The special guest, Matt Brown. Matt's going to talk and play a few songs for you, and then I'll come and interview him, and we'll close out with a collaborative piece between Matt Brown, the Picking Bubs, and Mark Dvorak. My name is Matt Brown, and like a majority of Americans, I currently have a cold. So I will not be singing at all, so I brought a couple different instruments, and I'll try and keep you entertained by playing them, not simultaneously, but uh, consecutively, (laughs) beginning with the fiddle. Here's a medley of fiddle tunes, the first of which I learned thanks to a good friend at the Old Town School, Paul Tyler, who's an incredible uh, repository of, of knowledge and wisdom about old-time music, and he, sh- he showed me this tune that has actually no name, so it's not really worth talking about any more than that. Um, and then I'll go from there into a couple of Doc Roberts tunes, and he was a fiddle player from Kentucky who was given the name when he was born Doc, but his professional name was Doc. <laughs> he decided that spelling his name D-O-C-K just wouldn't do well with the masses, so he just went with D-O-C, um, which I think was a really wise choice.
Thank you. Well, I'm going to play a slower tune um, as we warm up our fingers. This one comes to us from Western North Carolina. It has a very common fiddle tune name, but it's a very strange uh, rendition of, of the fiddle tune. The tune's called Polly Put the Kettle On. There's no, no further story than just the name, so you can imagine whatever scenario required Polly to put the kettle on. Um, but it comes to us from Swannanoa, North Carolina, which is near Asheville, and from the fiddle playing of a great musician named Marcus Martin, who had a contemporary with whom he shared a lot of repertoire, whose name was even better than Marcus Martin. Marcus Martin was a great fiddle player, but as a name, as a fiddle player name, it's maybe not the most extraordinary. But his contemporary in the region was named Manko Sneed. <laughs> See that? People don't name their babies that way as much anymore. Um, and Manko, I, his playing was great, but his, I, th I think his name was even better. Um, Marcus Martin, his fiddle playing was what really got me, not so much his, his name. Um, but yeah, he, he played this very spooky version of Polly Put the Kettle On. Usually Polly's putting the kettle on our, our jaunty numbers, and this is not one of those. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Um, so I, I was reading a little bit about you, and I see you come from a very musical family, and that seems to have been a big influence on your decision to play music or to get into the music anyway. Is that... Yeah, I would say I was lovingly force-fed this kind of music. Um, my father discovered the banjo as a phenomenon in the 70s, 
long before it was hip. Um, he was supposed to be out buying his sister a wedding gift and instead came to the wedding uh, with a banjo. <laughs> this is someone who had already studied North Indian classical music and was hosting house, Indian music house concerts in, in Boston or Cambridge. where I forget exactly where he lived. It was before I existed. Um, so by the time he met my mom, he was playing a variety of folk music styles. It was an era when people didn't really distinguish much, and he was living in New England where people might be playing an old-time tune and then a Scottish tune or an Irish hornpipe or a composed tune from New England. But he moved down to Pennsylvania where I was born, met my mom, and, and met a bunch of local musicians who all had real jobs and could afford nice instruments. But on the weekends and in the summers, they liked to go to festivals or um, play square dances or just sit around in their homes and, and play old-time music and eat you know, cheese and drink wine. <laughs> and, and you said force-fed. Was there a moment where, I mean, were you like, do they put the instrument in your hands and say play or what, you know, or just it was always around and you wanted to? How did that work? I can't say I remember it too much. I've interviewed my parents about this and I, the story never seems totally clear. I started violin on my fourth birthday and don't remember that day very much or any of the days around it. Um, I know that within... A couple months of, of learning the very basic Suzuki violin repertoire, and that's how I was trained. My dad had his bandmates teach me some very, very simple versions of fiddle tunes like you might learn in Fiddle One here at the Old Town School. Um, and then whenever an old-time music event happened at that point in our home or where, that I was uh, brought to, I would be encouraged to get out my fiddle and play however many songs I knew. In my teenage years, though, my mom took me off to this uh, week-long immersion camp at the Swan... It's called the Swannanoa Gathering. It's in Swannanoa, North Carolina, where Marcus Martin was from. Um, at Warren Wilson College, they have these week camps where you can go, and there's Celtic week where you learn Irish music or Scottish music, or old-time week, which is what I went to. And all these great old-time musicians who are also really good teachers will be there. And my mom took me there, and she went off and toured the Vanderbilt estate... Or no, Biltmore estate. That's what it is. One of the Bilts. Um during the day and left me to my own devices at this camp. And I took all the advanced fiddle classes and, and hung out at the jams and went to the square dances. And when I realized that as a 13 or 14 year old that I could kind of hang on in a jam session led by the teachers whose CDs we had at home and who we listened to in the car as we were driving around. And then I got to hang out and late, stay up late and listen to them tell dirty jokes. And I realized that adults do actually have a bit of fun and that most of the adults in my life were playing this kind of music and it all kind of came together and gave me a chance to really appreciate the music for itself as well. And it, it seems like you're somebody who's really, um, you're keyed into some of who the major players are and, you know, where they're from and who they are. I mean, how, how, what, how do you access that? You know, how do you kind of find out, oh, there's this guy who plays in Indiana here or, in, you know, in New Hampshire or whatever. How do you, what's the kind of scene like and how is it connected to it? Well, it's just getting easier and easier to get connected thanks to that thing that Al Gore invented, the intertube, or uh, whatever it's called. Um, when I was growing up, my dad had this amazing record and then CD collection, and a lot of the scholarship was just in the liner notes. People, whoever produced the record um, would provide more information about that musician, whether it was a contemporary one or a source musician, than you'd find anywhere else. It wouldn't be in the library or any other published materials. And all of my teachers impressed upon me the importance of knowing where the music comes from, not just geographically, but on a personal and social level. And one of them, uh, her name is Ginny Hawker, and she's an amazing singer of a variety of genres. Uh, I was in her singing classes at Swannanoa and Ashokan, and then did some, sh she does these small workshops where a pair of people will go and live with her and her husband, Tracy Shores, from the New Lost City Ramblers for a couple days, and you just get to immerse yourself. Well, she always makes a point in workshops to impress upon her students, most of whom are northerners and are passionate about the sounds they're hearing, but maybe, maybe ignorant about, about everything else. Um, she impresses upon all of us who might fall into that category even a little bit the importance of really honoring the tradition and getting to know the music and eat the food and meet the people and go to the places rather than just grab you know, those seven notes and run the other way and say, oh, I know how, how to play old-time music now. So I'm, you know, it's a constant process. I grew up with old time music in my house, but I didn't grow up in the South a hundred years ago. Right. So I still have to 
keep learning about it, and uh, it's it's a fun thing to do. Well, I know I know you've got a, a few instruments here. I, did you want to do another another fiddle tune, or you want to switch over? What? Let me do one more fiddle tune, okay? And then just as I'm getting comfortable with that, then we'll have Yank me play another instrument. <laughs> um, that first that first number that that the Bubs did was kind of a bluesy, had a bluesy vibe, and it got me thinking. I love playing the blues on the fiddle, and the past couple of records I've made have had fiddle blueses on them. I don't know, what's the plural of blues, anyway? Um, and this is one from a, the previous album um, from a couple years back, and it's, it's a song that comes from Mississippi, from Carroll County, Mississippi, and it has a very inventive name called the Carroll County Blues. It's a good one. <laughs> I think you know a lot of a lot of times um, with with fiddle music. I think people forget how much it was part of blues music. Also, I think and in the past and um, was there much intersection? Like, would there be would there be kind of an overlap of like who was playing types of songs? You know, I think oh definitely later on things you know we. In popular culture, everything gets kind of regimented. This was white music, this was black music, this is from here or there, but I think there was probably a lot more movement about that, wasn't there? For sure. There were a lot of all-black string bands that would play blues or pre-blues or a variety of string band music, and a lot of white musicians playing that same sounding music. And then I've also heard anecdotally tales of people who we all think of as as blues musicians, and I'm not going to pick one out because I, I forget which anecdote I'm even thinking of but um, someone like John Hurt or Bill Brunzi or you know one of, one of those cats saying at, they were at, a, at an event with people playing with I guess some white southerners playing old time music and someone asked them like did you ever hear that music growing up or whatever and it's like hear it I, we played it every Saturday night at square dances <laughs> so that the people that, that we kind of retroactively placed into the blues bin um, they were playing you know guitar for the fiddle and banjo players, or they also themselves played fiddle and banjo. Um, 
and then maybe they found a career in a certain kind of music. Um, but there was a lot of overlap for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and and speaking of fiddle and uh, banjo and guitar and and well, how long have you been playing guitar? I know you started on fiddle. How long? Well, I haven't that? started yet. Uh, it'll be about three minutes in about three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it was sometime in my teens. My dad was a banjo player uh, my whole life so far, um, and then he got the idea that it'd be worth having a house guitar because people come over. At least my house. I don't know about your house, Dan, but <laughs> growing up, people would come over and they all could, could play guitar, but they usually didn't bring one. And so my dad decided, well, if he bought one, then more people would play guitar. And then, of course, he bought it, and so he had to learn how to play it. And then he had to learn how to play it, so then I learned how to play it. And this all happens at some vague point in my late teenage years. Um, but I've the past couple sessions, I've been teaching this early country guitar class next door at the school. And the tune we learned last week was... Uh, was from Libba Cotton, her uh, iconic version of Freight Train. And we, we love to sing in that class, but our focus is on actually learning the guitar parts. And in preparing for tonight, I, I got to thinking of, well, I've got this cold, and I've got a guitar, and I know how to play Libba Cotton's Freight Train, and I, I thought about maybe putting a medley together of, of guitar instrumentals, but that all have lyrics that you can all hum in your heads while I play them. Uh, <laughs> I could just stand here and hum next to you if you want. That would be great, actually. <laughs> the first one comes from my, my favorite American poet, Hank Williams. Um, I like his lyrics so much that I won't be singing them tonight. <laughs> and then the second one is a, a, a gospel number that you'll recognize from some movie or other. <clears throat> Thank you. 
Thank you. That's, that's a great tune. And it, it reminds me, you know, Elizabeth Cotton, she was, she was still around, you know, during the folk revival, I believe, when, you know, some of the people who've, you know, been carrying on that music, I think Taj Mahal and some of the people got to meet with her, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and, uh, for sure. And one of my big heroes in old time music, uh, his name is Mike Seeger, and he, he lived in the house where, uh, where Elizabeth Cotton worked for many years as a domestic and... She was discovered, I think, by Mike's sister, Peggy. Um, these are the younger half-siblings of, of Pete Seeger. Um, I think Peggy, it was Peggy Seeger who, who discovered Libba Cotton one day playing one of the family guitars upside down and backwards, playing <laughs> this song, Freight Train, which she had composed when she was a teenager. And she was, I think, 70-something when, when this happened. Um, and at, soon thereafter, Mike Seeger would, started to take uh, Libba out on tour and back her up. So they, they made a couple records of her and she toured the, the festival scene. She must have played here in Chicago. Um, probably played the Folk Festival because the New Lost City Ramblers helped start it. Um, it was just a little before my time of being here. But um, I got to hang out with Mike a little bit and, and knew him a little bit. Um, and I've heard, heard a bit of some stories about that time when he would go around and he was just basically her Sherpa and her backup <laughs> musician so that she could have her, her chance to be a professional musician, which I don't think she ever considered a possibility um, as, a, as a mother and as just as a working person. Um, she just happened to be a working person in the Seeger family household <laughs> and their life's work was to, to make the music of regular people um, available to other regular people and then everyone else too. How about, how about you? Have you ever been a Sherpa for somebody? You have some people my that kind of stand for your dad? <laughs> no, my dad's great. Um, we, he started a record label, and we did some recordings on site. At, like we, I, remember, I have this memory of driving up to New Hampshire to make a record from Pennsylvania. We drove up um, lugging all the gear with us, or we'd go down to Clifftop, which is the big, to this day, still big old-time music convention, it's like Mecca, but for old-time musicians, and it just appears once a year um, magically in, in very rural West Virginia. Um, and he was, he was dubbed the, the Martha Stewart of Clifftop because he, he liked to bring several different big canopies and a full-size charcoal grill and enough um, dead chicken to feed 28 old-time musicians on, on any given evening. And I had the, the pleasure of helping him with all of that in between jam sessions and all that. So. <laughs> and um, I'd, I'd also like to talk to you a little bit about what, what's, is there a kind of a, a local uh, a scene in, in Pennsylvania for Old Town Music? And did, did you tap into that before coming out here? Or is it kind of more, is it more about festivals where it kind of just appears where the festivals are as well, far as old time music? There's a lot of great old time talent around home. And I was fortunate in that my dad was already in a band before I existed and um, through my, my younger years. And so there's maybe two dozen or so really good musicians playing all the instruments you'd expect, fiddle, banjo, guitar. Um, just none of them do it professionally. But we, there'd be at least once a month a jam session at someone's house, maybe more frequently. And then those people would all make the pilgrimage to, um, to Mecca, Clifftop or Mount Airy or Galax or one of these festivals. And then we had some local events, festivals, and uh, yeah, there was a good amount of music. I, I hear that the Philadelphia scene was absolutely legendary right before I was born. So, you know, good old days, you always miss them. Whenever they were, you always come around a little bit later than, they, than whenever they were. So. Well, how, how, when did you first associate yourself with the Old Town School? And maybe you could talk a little bit about what that scene's done for you as a musician. Sure, it's paid my rent, for one. Um, I, I unfortunately didn't know about the Old Town School when I was growing up. The word hadn't reached Westchester, Pennsylvania about how cool a place it is. But when I was starting to tour, I had this great idea that life could be made, um, a living could be made as a touring solo old-time musician. And though there have been a couple people who've done it, uh, Mike Seeger, for one, who we talked about earlier, and, and Bruce Molsky, for another who's playing the school in April, fortunately. Um, they, they figured out how to do it and they're amazing and big heroes of mine, um, but they also do a lot of collaboration and, they've, and 
Bruce, for example, had a, a, an actual career as a regular person, uh, an engineer, until into his 40s. So I don't even remember what the question was. Oh, um, when I started Me touring... Either, so you're on your own. It's fine. <laughs> Are you still here? Um, when I started touring, someone mentioned... I, I had somehow convinced someone in Chicago to host a house concert for me. Um, and when some other person, this guy Ken Waldman, when Ken heard about it, he said, oh, you should walk into the Old Town School and just you know, see what's up there. It's a cool place. And maybe you could convince someone to hire you for a workshop. And I said, yeah, right, Like that's going to happen. Well, I get here and go to the, the Chicago Barn Dance up in Evanston at Space. We were talking about Space earlier. Um, and Steve Rosen and Fred Campo and Ben Wright from the Hen House Prowlers were playing. And uh, a couple days later, I walk into the school, the, this side of the street, 4544, walk up to the front desk. Some young sapling was working as a, as a desk pilot there. And uh, I walked up and just said, I'd like to talk to someone about teaching an old-time fiddle workshop here. And to his credit, whomever he was, I forget, um, he called Chris Walls up an admin and Chris came down and said sure let's go get some coffee I need a coffee so we walked over to Starbucks and I painted a, a quick picture of who I was and what I'd done and he agreed to maybe have me teach a workshop and then we talked for another 30 minutes after that about all our various passions in old time music and bluegrass so sure enough next time through I taught a fiddle workshop it went surprisingly well uh, the time after that I taught a fiddle workshop and a, and a banjo workshop and opened for David Grisman, which was one of the most terrifying things ever. Colleen Miller um, emailed me one day after Chris put me in touch with her. This is before the Grisman thing. I said, how would you like to open for David Grisman? And I emailed her right back with the affirmative. Um, I was terrified. I, I think it was one of the worst shows I've ever played because I had the mi misconception that Grisman would have been listening, but he was down in the green room um, in the basement, not listening. And um, so I, had to, I got to hang out with his fans for two shows. And then a month later, you think, you think he was listening on the intercom? Were you there in the room? Oh, gosh. I, this changes everything. Huh? I even have the board tape from that night that Rob gave me after the show, and I can't bear to listen to it. But I really enjoyed being at the school each time and loved the scene. One of the times that I visited, actually, Paul and Steve invited me to one of their graduations on Wednesday nights when, at the end of the session when they have their old-time ensemble and, and various classes perform. Um, they invited me to come to that at, at one of the local bars, and I was just amazed by all these people playing old-time music, and it wasn't just people my parents' age. Um, <laughs> so a month after being here and, and doing the two workshops and opening two shows, I called Chris Walls and said, any chance you need a anything teacher um, and he said well Matt I'd love to have you there's nothing at the moment but if you if you found your way here I'd try and make you busy and then the guy who had been teaching introduction to the banjo Ed Tverdick made a life change and decided to become a Franciscan friar um, which means relinquishing intro to the banjo classes now is that definitive do you, you can't do both at once is that I think the friary is very specific about these things um, and speaking of frying, he wasn't allowed to take his skillet either, so he gave me his banjo class and his skillet. Um, <laughs> and I moved here on my birthday four and a half years ago. I moved in in the afternoon, and then my dad and I ate at Fork, and then that night in the soccer club, actually next door, um, I taught my first introduction to the banjo class. It was a whirlwind. <laughs> and now I'm here for good. We're glad you're here. And let's, let's see that banjo that's been paying your way in Chicago, I guess. <laughs> Well, this is actually an interesting banjo. Not that you asked. I should. Um, I, I should have. It would. Have, it would have been the right thing to do. But it's it's a collaboration between the Gold Tone Banjo Company and Neckville Banjo Companies. Um, this guy named Mark Horowitz, who was Bela Fleck's first banjo teacher before Bela studied with Tony. When when Bela got too good for Mark, Mark said, "Okay, go study with Tony Trishka." And then eventually Bela wore out Tony Trishka and became Bela Fleck. Um, well, that guy, that first guy, Mark Horowitz, is a great, great guy, lives in New York, and is a regional sales rep for the Gold Tone Banjo Company. Now plays mostly Clawhammer, but he used to be a Bill Keith acolyte and play bluegrass stuff. And he, a couple years ago, went to Clifftop, but brought some beautiful wooden banjo with all the, all the trappings, and it would barely perform. It was another soggy day at Clifftop, and the banjo was all thumpy and pathetic, even more than usual. Um, <laughs> and so he designed, with Gold Tone's help and Neckville's help, this 
travel banjo that's impervious to any weather ever. It's a graphite neck that detaches. I can, with an Allen wrench, I can take this banjo apart in about 14 seconds. It takes me four hours to put it back together. But um, Can we do an experiment? Can we pour some water or beer or something? Maybe after I play my one okay. song. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, then it, and then the pot is made out of, well, it's actual wood. It's walnut. But somehow this is more indestructible and less pervious. It's impervious. Um, anyway, it's a great banjo. And... I'm going to I'm going to play for you a tune that I wrote actually this weekend for this this evening. Um I I went into this strange banjo tuning. This sonorous sound, I know, right? Um it actually sounds like something when you put some fingers down. Ah. An E major chord. Um and I went into this tuning thinking I would play for you and sing uh Cumberland Gap, which is a lovely tune about a disputed pass that changed hands many times in, in wars down where Kentucky and Tennessee and all those states connect. Um, and then I'd realized I wasn't going to be able to sing and I thought, thought, well, maybe I'll just, I'll play Cumberland Gap and then I'll, I'll have this little interlude. And I, well, what interlude? Well, then I just wrote a ba- banjo tune um, that doesn't have a name yet. I'm temporarily calling it Cumberland Nap. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to play Cumberland Gap. I'm going to attempt this brand new banjo tune that needs a name, so please talk to me after um, in this very strange tuning in the claw hammer style. Another good one. You got a bunch. How many songs do you think you know? Oh gosh, I have no idea. You pick it up. You pick them up quickly. Like you, you hear them. You know, if you, you're at a festival, you hear a new melody or something. Do you pick it up, or you have to kind of sit with it a little bit? How does that work for you? Well, festival is a weird example because when you're walking around a festival, you're usually hearing seven tunes at once, and that's that can be a hard time to learn music. Um, but no, learning an old-time fiddle tune for me is, is a pretty quick endeavor nowadays. It didn't used to be, but um, I can now learn like a, the typical sort of fiddle tune that doesn't have too many twists and turns after hearing it once or so. so. Are, there, are there certain things that have 
evolved in in fiddle music like if, if you're listening to something and you hear someone play in a certain way or do a certain thing you to oh no one would have done that before 1938 yes. or something like that yeah. for sure um and some of it is some of it's just a matter of of uh, a musician's personal style being so impressive that other people then decide they want to they want to mimic it, and then it mm. eventually can become part of the tradition, but for sure. One of the things that is different is just how, how the music is surrounded, like what instruments are played along with old-time fiddle tunes, or how the tunes are arranged, or what chords people put to it. There's, there's quite a variety in that regard. And uh, a number of the fiddle tunes I've played so far today are on a, an album I made over the summer with this guy Greg Reich, who's a great multi-instrumentalist, and his guitar playing is particularly spectacular. And one of the things we talk about is that a number of the tunes that we recorded together weren't originally recorded as duets. There was no guitar part. There were no chords. And so we got to, to pick out what chords we were going to play with it. And um, in some cases, the choices were fairly obvious. And in other cases, they weren't. And we maybe offended some um, old-time musician somewhere. Um, but most people don't care too much about that. Is there, is there a lot of kind of purists versus... You know, innovators, and where 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 do you stand in that sort For of thing? For sure. Um, well, I always I always think that th when the stakes are this low, that's when passions can get really high. Um, do you mean this this podcast is no, that? No, no, oh no, no, sorry, no, no. I didn't phrase this, that right. This audience, I don't. <laughs> no, the stakes are high tonight, and and on every future episode of this enduring broadcast. Um, Perfect. I just I was just referring to the fact that. You know, old-time music and, and other musics like it where it's made mostly by people just having fun playing music together. That It's not a commercialized style in the sense that people aren't raking in millions um, performing and recording it. Um, that there are, there are passionate enthusiasts who, who get worked up about one thing or another because they care a lot about mm -hmm. it. Um, but like I said, in those scenarios, the stakes <laughs> might, maybe aren't so high. Yeah. There was something else in your question that I've already was, forgotten as I think, well. I think wherever it went was good. So, cool. what, what, what do you have uh, next for us? I think we'll do one more song, and then we're going to invite the Picking Bubs out. I guess you guys have worked a few things together to play. So Excellent. Um, then I'll play a pair of, of tunes from this blind fiddle player named Ed Haley, who was born in West Virginia but lived out his life in Ashland, Kentucky. Um, these are on this record that I just mentioned with Greg, but they're on two separate tracks. And we decided in one of our recent shows that they, sat, they help each other out when they're put together as a medley. So the first tune is called Dunbar. It's named after a little town in West Virginia. And we think that Ed Haley himself wrote the tune. And then it goes into a tune called Bluegrass Meadows. And I know nothing about what that name refers to. Um, but Ed Haley was a virtuosic fiddle player, blind fiddle player who whose music was almost not passed on to the rest of us, but thanks to the enterprising work of, of Alan Jabor and some others, and then John Hartford and Bob Carlin, and then now the folks down at Springfed Records, um, a record label that Greg actually oversees. Um, there have been several generations of, of releases of, of home recordings of Ed Haley's music, and uh, yeah, he was great. So Dunbar and Bluegrass Meadows, we'll try those. Now, both of these are dance tunes, and uh, I know many of you are, are seated, at least here in the Grafton. I don't know about those of you following along at home at 10 a.m. Um, but this is dance music, and, and dancing on the radio is great as long as you don't fall off. So feel free. Or just tap your feet.
looks like we're going to bring the bubs back up. Looks How about like a hand it. for them? <laughs> Here are the bubs. And thanks a lot, Matt, for coming by and talking with us. I think everybody learned a lot. And just thank, thank you. It's wonderful. Thank maybe, you, Dan. Well, maybe, you know, when we're doing like a 20th anniversary show or something, we could have you sing and stuff like that. So. I'll make sure not to have a cold. <laughs> All right. <laughs> You're perfect without, without the singing, too. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. How about a hand for Matt Brown, everybody? And Dan Kugler for a great job. Wonderful, Dan. And we're just going to finish the night with a collaboration here with the Pickin' Bubs. And uh, I'm sitting in tonight for Maura Lally. And we're going to do a, a, a bluegrass song when, uh, about springtime when the bluebells in Kentucky were blooming in the spring. And Matt's going to kick us off. B flat. must be true I dreamed of southern sunshine the bluegrass state and you we were walking by the river and we heard the cuckoos sing when the bluebells in Kentucky were blooming in the spring headed down to Jabers we kicked off of our shoes Got me a brand new haircut And we caught up on all the news Oh, I bought a big red soda From the downtown pop machine When the bluebells in Kentucky Were blooming in the spring Katie's branch to the Coulter old home place Talked about the hard times and the loved ones we embraced Oh, we laughed and joked and teased the girls and sat on the front porch swing When the bluebells in Kentucky were blooming in the spring river like a sacred veil it seemed and you took my hand and your eyes replied to some unspoken thing when the bluebells in Kentucky were blooming in the spring oh I had a dream the other night so real it must be true I dreamed of summer sunshine the and you Walking by the river and we heard the cuckoos sing When the bluebells in Kentucky were blooming in the spring When the bluebells in Kentucky were blooming in the spring (laughs) 
Thank you for coming back. Matt Brown, Dan Kugler. See you next month.